Hi, my name is Yasmin Terehi, and this is Gateways to Awakening, where we host one-on-one conversations with leading experts in wellness and spirituality. Today's episode is about soulful parenting, the importance of the sacred in one's life, and a new vision for men's spirituality. On today's episode, we'll be featuring our guest, David Harshada Wagner. David is a creative mindset consultant, spiritual teacher, author, artist, and proud father who has dedicated more than 30 years of his life to the path of selfless service, spiritual awakening, and radical self-transformation. He's been helping people from all walks of life, all over the world, and helping them live magnificent lives for more than 25 years. He's also the author of the best-selling men's book, Backbone, and is working on his new book based on the teachings of the Bhagavad Gita. Thanks so much for joining us today, David. Really excited to have you on the show. Yeah, I'm so happy to be here, Yasmin. So David, on your website, you write, in quotes, you deserve the best of life and life deserves the best of you. Can you tell me what you mean by that? <laughs> yeah. When I look at the the overall kind of overarching need for what I do in the world, um, there's so many opportunities to get caught in details, you know, whether it's, you know, teaching meditation and meditation techniques or the men's work that I do or the work that I do with parents or the creative mindset work. And basically, when I look at it and I look at all the things that I do and all the things that I've done, on one hand, you deserve the best of life. Okay, most people can can kind of get that. You know, like we deserve the best relationships, we deserve the best um, health, the best experience of our work in the world, everything. And also, there's another part to that to that transaction, which is then I believe that the world really deserves the best of us, that life itself, it's such a magnificent thing, life. And, you know, life deserves the best of us just the same way we deserve it. So it's like, it's reciprocal, you know, like there can be so much self-absorption is a word uh, in the kind of modern new age, you know, spirituality, self-help kind of thing. It's all about the first half of that, of having the best for me. But, you know, I also really believe in service and I believe in the way that when we uplift ourselves, we uplift the world around us. And it's just such an important part of it. So yeah, that's become kind of the the masthead of, of the work in the past few years. Mm, I love that so much. I, I really resonate with that as well. Like, I think a lot of people on the path are really focused on their own personal journey and it becomes somewhat individualized and disconnected from the greater whole. Um, And so I think that realizing that we're all just this interconnected web, not only just as humans, but as nature, you know, we're interconnected with nature. We, we kind of work together with everything. Um, So I just think that's really beautiful. David, you coach others on soulful parenting Can you tell us what you mean by that? Sure. Um, You know, I myself am a parent. I have two kids that are school age. You know, my son is eight and my daughter just turned six. And um, 
what I found was that, you know, before I was a parent, I had lots of students and lots of people that I worked with that, that were parents, but becoming a parent myself, recognizing the unique challenges and opportunities in that and, and how, again, it kind of comes back to that first idea that when our spirituality or our self-help or our, our, our transformation healing process, however you want to look at it, when, when it's all about us, that, that all about us mentality does not survive parenthood. <laughs> um, and, and, and so what people will then end up doing is they'll have kids and then they just drop their spiritual practices or, you know, they, they drop that, drop that aspect of being a seeker. And what I find is that it's, it's even more important in many ways to doing the work when we're parents, but it, it's unique. You know, our needs as parents are unique. And then you know, this term soulful parenting, you know, it's like, I don't know about you, but my house as an adult is very different than the house that my parents had that I, that I grew up in. And, you know, there, there are many things that I want to carry forward that came from my parents and came from past generations. But culturally, we're doing something very different in my current family. And so many people are, I feel like in this, in this contemporary age, parents are really doing things that parents have never done before. And, you know, there's, there's so much pressure, consumer pressure and pressure from technology and so many things that are easy to get caught up in if we're not paying attention and we're not being soulful. And so the idea is, it's like, okay, well, let's do this in a new way. Let's do this, however, in a way that is rooted to tradition and, and to lineage and to our, you know, our roots but, you know, let's like really be soulful about it and let's be conscious about the choices that we make so that our experience as parents can have that soulful quality. In other words, like I said before, we don't detach from our own process of evolution as individuals. But then also so that we can really bring our best to those relationships with our kids because they really deserve it. Right, right. I think, you know, I am not a parent, but I am an auntie to many little babies. And uh, mm-hmm. I've often, you know, a lot of my friends have said the same thing over and over again. They've said that they have almost little to no time for themselves. And I think uh, oftentimes their children become their lives. And But at the same time, they also say that becoming a parent is a meditation because your children are so present and so in the moment, uh, especially when they're very young, that it forces you to also become very present and in the moment. And I think, so it's this interesting, uh, I think, conversation, you know, about parenting and, and I think the spectrum of people who feel like they have lost their individuation to people who have maybe, um, you know, maybe are actually going deeper 
into themselves because of ha- of their experience having a child and having to be so present. So it's super interesting. I mean, I think we could probably spend just a couple hours yeah. talking about this topic alone <laughs> and there's so yeah. much to talk about. Uh, but I'm, yeah, it's something that I'm, I'm really interested in and I've just been observing, uh, you know, adjacently to, to all the, the people that I know in my life who are parents and new, really new parents as well. Yeah. I mean, it goes both ways, you know, like for some people, they get really lost in the process of parenting. And for some people, and, and again, I think it's important that they, you know, like you said, parenting can, can be like a meditation and, but you know, that's, that takes some focus, you know, and, and it's not as, it's not as easy as it's, as it may sound. Um, and you know, it's, it's a, it's a spiritual path. It's a spiritual discipline, like so many other things. Right. Right. I mean, how do you encourage parents or anyone really to focus on themselves when they're so busy today? I think, um, there's been, you know, so many articles that have come out, about how workism is our new religion, you know, people have treated <laughs> work as kind of like their identity. And oftentimes, and I think uh, one of the stats that I read was that like 87% of people are not even engaged with their jobs. And so, um, yeah, so I'm curious, like, and maybe we, this leads into an, my next question, which is about cultivating the sacredness and rituals in everyday life. You know, how, how are those two things kind of, how do you play with those two concepts with your, uh, with your clients? Yeah. Yeah, I appreciate those questions. I'm trying not to just like give like a a, a knee jerk answer. Um, yeah, <laughs> we're so used to hearing all of the politicians that already have their stump speech, you know, their stump speech ready. Um, and you know, it's and the reason why I want to consider it is because you know I myself have have been a seeker for my whole adult life. And, you know, have been teaching now for a long time. And all of this continues to unfold and continues to require me to adapt, you know, like yeah. as I move through different stages in my life, as I move through different um, moments in the collective, mm-hmm. you know, in this, in this moment of the collective where there's this global pandemic that's happening and, you know, being soulful in this moment is is different than it was in October of 2014. And yeah. I hope it's really different than it's going to be in October of 2022. Um, it, it's, it's like a matter of taking a step back and almost having like a conversation. And this is going to sound really really intense, but having a conversation with death Mm. and, and have it, you know, in other words, like just imagining, you know, like that kind of retrospective, uh, examination, like we die and we look back and, and we look at this moment and, or, you know, if that's, too much, then we can think of ourselves as like an old wise version of ourselves, like in a rocking chair, <laughs> looking <laughs> back. Um, but you know, it's like, what do we? Where are we? You know, where? Who are we with? And a big question is, you know, what are we missing? 
Hmm. Like not in the sense of like, what are we missing? Like, what are we not getting? But what are we missing? Like, what are we not seeing? Who, who are we not really seeing? Who are we not really loving the way that they deserve to be loved? Because, you know, everyone says that, you know, when we're on our deathbed, those are the things that we're thinking about. You know, we're not thinking about our money so much. We're not thinking about like our projects at the office, but, you know, we're thinking about our loved ones and our kids and, you know, the, the way that we have either embraced or not embraced the experience of being alive. Mm. And, you know, it's like, that's it in a nutshell. But like you said, what did you call it? Workism? Workism. It was in the the Atlantic the other day. Yeah. 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 Workism. I love that. Yeah. So in in that, you know, it's workism is also, you know, it's part of consumerism because, you know, we have these jobs that we work all the time to make enough money to pay all the thing, pay for all the things that we, you know, pay for so that we can be comfortable enough to sleep at night to get up in the morning and go back to work too much, (laughs) you know, in, in many cases. Um, and it's a matter of, of being able to step out of that circle. Um, I think both periodically, you know, like being able to take a little retreat every now and then, but also regularly, and this comes back to the, you know, rituals and daily life and practices and daily life. Um, but you know, I think it's important for people to have a vision to really know their purpose in life and have a vision for it and, you know, to update that vision regularly and, and then, you know, to keep track of it, you know, like with a journal, like get up in the morning and when you're having your, your morning tea or coffee, you know, in addition to listening to the news, also sit down and make some news, you know, sit down (laughs) and, you know, look at like, this is okay. This is where I'm at with this vision you know, here, here's, here's how my dream is evolving right now. Like, you know, how are my kids doing? You know, what's my vision for them this week? You know, these sorts of questions that, um, if all of a sudden everything is taken away, those are the things that we care about. And, and it's a matter of like, I believe the the modern seeker, the modern sacred practitioner um, that's a big part of it. It's like just learning how to have one foot outside of this whole drama that we're living in so that we can, we can reflect on how we are playing our role in it or not. Mm, yeah. Beautiful. Like having an observer view rather than maybe the first person view. Um, I was going to say that, you know, this is part of like the creative process, like a lot of the people that I, I consult with are creatives, especially here in Southern California where I live, people in the you know movie industry or TV industry and so on. But, um, but anyone that I talk to, I talk to as a creative in the sense of, you know, when, because I went to art school once upon a time and, you know, for a lot of my adult life, I have not been an art maker. 
you know, like I've, I, my creative work has mostly been my teaching and creating events. But what I really learned from all of my art teachers who were artists themselves was that I learned how to approach life from that artistic point of view, mm. you know, from this point of view that's really observing and, and, and kind of not getting too caught up in the rat race that we can't artfully craft the way that we're living. That's really what it comes down to. Right. You know? Right. That's beautiful. Yeah. I think most of us, um, I was listening to something that Elizabeth Gilbert shared on audible the other day about how most of us are kind of thrown into this world of produce and consume. If we're not, if we're not told that we have, you know, incredible talent in the arts. Um, and so it kind of deters us from just being makers. And I think that's yeah. such a powerful, such a powerful, powerful reminder that, you know, deep within each of us, there is a maker that is interested yeah. in making something, even if it's not something that necessarily needs to be produced or consumed, right? It's just, there's a, yeah. there's a desire to just yeah, create for the sake of creating. Yeah. David, you spent a lot of time in India and I definitely want to get into that story in your journey in a little bit, but I'm curious if you could tell us about what you learned from your experience with a tuk-tuk driver. I thought that the story <laughs> was just so beautiful <laughs> and I thought it would be interesting for you to share. Maybe, maybe, um, take out some of the swear words in Hindi. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Cause all the, all the, all of my, my Indian folks in Dubai will be listening to this maybe. Um, so, I mean, India has been a, a big part of my journey because that has been what my spiritual training has been connected to, you know, of studying Vedanta and yoga and, you know, tantric Shaivism and you know, all these different kind of currents that come from India. So, you know, my teachers have been India, Indian and, you know, going to India has been a big part of my life. I, I bring groups of people to India every year. This will be the first January in 15 years that I haven't brought a group to India. Wow. Yeah. It's, it's really, it's really, um, it's really unfortunate because, you know, now I have people there that are really family to me by now and that I only really see when I go there for work. But, um, so I think you're referring to the story, you know, that, there's a particular story, but there could be, you know, many of them. <laughs> um, but, you know, where there's something about the land of India and, and the chaos, beautiful chaos of India, that like mysteries can hide in, in the crevices, you know, with so many different crevices and nooks <laughs> and crannies available. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, the, so they have these auto rickshaws and, you know, some, in some places they're called tuk-tuks that are like these little three wheel, uh, machines and you sit in the back and they have like a little roof to them. They're like these little capsules. And in many cities, this is a, you know, common form of uh, public transportation. And I was in Delhi, uh, one year doing some work and I was there for a few weeks and I had to take these auto rickshaws all the time. And the Delhi auto rickshaw drivers are notorious for fleecing customers. 
And um, not not just foreign customers either, but it's just you talk to anyone in Delhi and they'll tell you, you know, you have to, you know, haggle with them and, you know, they'll try to swindle you. And um, and so and then being a being a European, you know, American person, then they just think even more so that they have a license to fleece and so every day, multiple times a day, I would have to have these these haggling conversations with these guys. And I, I speak some Hindi and enough to, you know, negotiate those sorts of things. And, you know, in most places in India, I could just speak Hindi to someone and they just assume that they can't they can't pull one over on me. But in Delhi, they're pretty fearsome. <laughs> so there was this one particular day where um, I was just, I'd had it. I'd been there for several days and had, you know, gone through this ritual so many times. And I was in this big gang of all of these, these rickshaw drivers. And, um, they were kind of ganging up on me. And, you know, one was saying, you know, no, don't listen to him. It's 500, you know, here, here, I'll take you, I'll take you for, for 400. But it was really like 40 is what it should have been. <laughs> and this is going on and on. And I was getting really, my ego was getting inflamed. So I was, <laughs> I was aggravated, but I was also feeling disrespected. And so I started using some choice expressions <laughs> in Hindi that I've learned along the way. That are, if they're translated literally, they none of them mean anything too bad. But in in the context, they're very very crude. They're very vulgar, and especially for a guest <laughs> to be speaking that, then it comes out even worse. And um, I'm letting it fly in all directions and kind of losing, losing my cool. <laughs> and this one rickshaw driver sitting there watching and he just gestures to me and he's, he's being kind of cool. He's not in the whole, in the whole, you know, fray. And, and so I go over to him and I'm like, yeah, what, what, like, what are you, what are you going to say? You know, 300. <laughs> and, and, and he says, no, just get in, just get in. And that's, but that's one of the things that they do. They say, oh, just get in. I've, I've got you. Pay whatever you like. That's what they say. And then they say, well, no, it's 400. <laughs> yeah. So, so, so he's doing that. He said, just get in, just get in. I was like, yeah, how much? He's like, you know, as you wish. And I was like, yeah, as I wish I'm going here. I go here every day. It's 40 rupees. He's like, yeah, yeah. 40 rupees, whatever. It's fine. Just get in. So I'm like, oh, <laughs> finally. So I'm sitting in this thing and he pulls off and he's kind of cruising through, through Delhi. And, um, it's in a very populous part of town and, um, he's cruising along and I see him looking at me in his rear view mirror. And, uh, and he says, um, you speak Hindi. And, and I say, yes. And he's like, very good. And so finally, he's like, somebody's recognizing how awesome I am. And my ego is starting <laughs> to feel a little bit better. And then he says, um, he says, but when you're talking to those men, you sound, you sound like a naughty schoolboy. Mm. And, and he was like scolding me. And I was like, uh, 
he's like, those things that you were saying are very bad things to say in Hindi. <laughs> and, and then I was just sort of like, oh, you know, I just kept quiet and he kept going and he goes, what are you doing here? And what are you doing here in Delhi? And I said, uh, um, I'm, I'm a teacher of uh, Vedanta. So embarrassed now because I'm <laughs> acting like the most unspiritual, unvedantic, you know, jerk. <laughs> and and he just cruises along and then he kind of gestures to all the people that are around and he says, I believe that God lives inside of everyone, mm. which is one of the basic teachings of Vedanta. And I could just feel his vibration, you know, like I'm in his little cab thing. And I, I could just feel his vibe and I could just see that he's like really like kind of rooted in that. And he said, I believe that God lives inside of everyone. So do you believe that? And I sort of, that kind of like snapped me out of my ego fever. And I kind of connected back into my heart and I was like, yeah, yeah, I do. I do. And he looks in the rear view mirror. He says, that's how you should talk to people. Not the way you were talking to those those men back there. And I was like, yeah, you're so right. And so we get to the place and, you know, I gave him his 40 and then I, you know, I had like a couple hundred more in my pocket and they gave that to him and he just pushed it away. And he said, no, I said it was 40. And I said, yeah, the 40 is for the ride. And this, this is for, this is Dakshina, which means like, uh, it's like the, when the money that you give to a guru mm -hmm. and I said, this is, this is for your Upadesh. Like this is for your spiritual teaching wow. <laughs> and I'll never forget that. It didn't fix, uh. it didn't fix me. I was still a jerk, <laughs> you know, after that, but it, it definitely, it definitely did something for me. <laughs> oh, I love that story so much. I, I think, you know, there's such power also in these uh, I would call them like hinge moments or transformational moments where you're moving yes. in one direction and then all of a sudden, you know, there's an, there's an enlightened experience and it could be just like the most simple of moments, right? Like you're in a, yeah. you know, you're in the, the back of a tuk-tuk and, and you have this like really powerful message, um, you know, on how to treat people. And it's just, it's just a, it's just a really cool, uh, powerful, deep message in these really simple moments in life. And I think a lot of people yes. are, are looking for these deeper uh, transformational moments in transcendental experiences, but they happen all the time around us. So I just really love that story. And I'm so happy that you shared it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that, the, I mean, the, the, the skeleton of that story is an opportunity for everyone where, you know, cause we all have people, whether we want to admit it or not, we all have people that we don't really think of uh, that are equal to us. Like, I know politically that's not a cool thing to say, but just the way that our ego works, you know, somebody is just like, they're not really a person, they're just a means to an end. You know, a waiter at a restaurant or a driver or, you know, someone who's like a, who's doing some kind of a labor job and they are trying to not get in our way and disturb us, you know, someone working on the garden or cleaning the house or something. and when we can step out of, if we can step out of that mentality that we're in, it's a kind of a colonial mentality and just look at them and just remember 
that they are a soul that this is, you know, this isn't just this lady that comes and cleans my house, but this is somebody's mom. This is somebody's daughter. This is, and ultimately, you know, this is my sister. This is my sister under God. And even if we don't speak the same language, even if really there's no business, we have no business talking to each other. In some cases, that's just the case. But to not take that as an excuse to ignore people um, and, and the same thing goes for kids, you know, and that's one of the hallmarks of soulful parenting is that, you know, my, my six-year-old daughter, Rabia, you know, she, she's a six-year-old. She just turned six and, you know, she's very little, um, but her soul isn't just six, mm. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's like in, in, you know, she is my six-year-old daughter and I still have to help her with the bathroom or help her to just do some really basic learning things in life. But that doesn't mean that I'm better than she is or that I'm, that she's less important than I am. And the other piece of it, like you were saying, it doesn't mean that she's more important than I am just because she's my kid. Mm. You know, like, like I'm her father, I'm her protector, I'm her provider, I'm her, you know, her, her God in a certain way right now. And I can get really lost in just putting all of her needs ahead of mine in a way that is unconscious. And, you know, going both ways like that is just such a huge doorway to expanded consciousness, like worth 10 million meditations. If you can have uh, an encounter with somebody who on the outside is not equal to you, you know, they're younger than you, they're, they work for you, you work for them, you know, you're, you're below them in some way. And you let that fall away and just see them, you know, straight, straight from the heart. That experience is, is worth, you know, so many drops of any kind of spiritual meditation thing, you know? Mm, wow. Yeah, that's such a powerful statement, David. I mean, I think that we live in such a hierarchical society. I mean, even, you know, we're, we're dealing with like the effects of a post-colonial world, right? And so actually we, we, there still is colonialism, <laughs> but, but uh, yeah. you, you know, even in the West, like we're, we're, even though we're trying to become equal, I think that we're still dealing with this, this, you know, construct that has existed underneath the surface. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, it's just an interesting exercise of deconditioning, you know, yourself to seeing someone as no greater than and no less than yourself. And that's really powerful, yeah. especially as a parent. Oh, yeah. Wow. <laughs> and especially when people, especially when people aren't acting like it. You know, and, and, you know, here in the U S we have this really huge division and contentious election. And, you know, when somebody is on that other side, it's really hard not to see them as, as stupid or see them as like bad people or see them, you know, we, we can get so warped into, okay, we have a different point of view in this situation. And and they're a great, they're a child of God, just, just like anyone, just like my daughter, Rabia, you know, <laughs> this, this angry, racist, you know, like inflamed, you know, American person acting so ugly, you could say, 
is just as beautiful as as Rabia doing her her dancing or you know like being an angel. Just the same way that she's just as beautiful when she's not being an angel, when she's crying or fighting me or, you know, giving me a hard time about something. It doesn't change how precious she is. And the same thing goes for all the people that, you know, we're constantly at odds with in this moment of of human evolution. Right, right. Ah, yeah. So powerful. Um and, you know, I think this is a good segue into this next question, because I think you kind of hit on this. Uh, you have a concept of the men's work um, on your website. And mm. I'm really curious how you define this new vision for men's spirituality. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for asking that. Yeah. It, what happened was, is, you know, at one point in my career, I just noticed that no, there were no men, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> I would do, I would do a big retreat at Kripalu or one of these, one of these places. And, you know, it would be 97% female. And then the 3% that were male, you know, a lot of them were you know, maybe like non, non-binary, non-gender conforming kind of effeminate men or, uh, confused husbands, you know, that had been drugged there by their, by their wife against their will. <laughs> and, and I, you know, as I was, you know, coming into the gauntlet of parenthood myself and needing to, to work out some of the issues with my own father my own masculinity, my own identity as a man, I started to really look at this and, and, and just realized that much of the modern spirituality, um, was marketed to women Mm. and, and really developed for women. Cause you know, in the West, you look at the way that women have, have blossomed since the 1950s. And, you know, to the point where, you know, now they run for president and they're on the Supreme Court. And, you know, like, whereas in my mother's generation, it was a completely different expectation. And and so women have had this huge meteoric expansion that they've had to had to do. And so then, you know, we have Oprah, you know. And things like Deepak Chopra in the New Age, what I call the I call it the Oprah Chopra revolution, <laughs> um, where you know, like yoga is a household name now, and you know, everything from essential oils to um, you know mindfulness practices to uh, you know just this general idea of holistic wellness, but um, it's mostly been aimed towards towards women. And and as I started to look at this, I just started to wonder, well, how much of it is the packaging, which is a lot of it, frankly, you know, like it's, you know, very lavender in, in the way that it's packaged usually. Um, but then there are other things about it too that just like come down into the the sort of the the nature of masculine and feminine energy and just the the masculine energy just is not so represented oftentimes so i set off and i wrote a book called backbone uh that is kind of a primer for men and i i wrote it in a way that you know you could just give to your uncle 
um, that has no, you know, basic interest in spirituality and he could kind of navigate it. Um, but I also wrote it for all of the quote unquote spiritual men who are very spiritual, but that had kind of renounced their masculinity as something Mm. bad. You know, we're like, we have this, that toxic father, or we have an experience of toxic masculinity. And then we're like, okay, I'm not into that. I'm going to be a gentleman. I'm going to be a spiritual man. Um, but, but yet then we have to ignore this whole side of us, you know, kind of similar to the, to the whole thing that, that women have had to do where they had a big movement of, you know, learning how to be more assertive and forceful and professional, and then have had to go back and reclaim some of the more traditionally feminine energies. Mm, It's the same kind of thing for men. Yeah. I think also the, integration of the masculine and feminine, I think is the work that every single human (laughs) is doing right now, because we're kind of, we've exactly like you said, like the women who have been successful in the corporate world have done it from a masculine frequency. And I think a lot of times Mm -hmm. what I've also noticed too, is that, um, you know, the concept of just man up, uh, you know, don't, don't get emotional, uh, don't look like a girl, that those kinds of language were, were language that, that I remember hearing, uh, directed towards men when I was growing up. And so there was no real, um, space for men to develop a relationship with their emotional world. And I think now it's a, now we're trying to create the tools and we're trying to make it much more acceptable. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that that's probably why, uh, well, I, you know what, I'm not going to say that last part. I was going to say that's probably why there's a lot more, you know, crime committed by men versus women, because there's just like a lack of connection with heart and emotional, you know, emotional development and spiritual development versus, versus women. So yeah, it's really yeah. I mean, there's there's lots there's lots in that whole examination for sure. Yeah, yeah. Your website mentions tantric Shaivism, and tantra is a buzzword. Can you tell us about this? What does it mean? What does tantra mean to you? Yeah. Um, well, first of all, let me say what it kind of what it doesn't mean, and and the reason why it's a buzzword is because it's it's also uh, very associated with sacred sexuality or this sort of, it's a very modern idea, but it's this kind of in, spiritually enhanced sexuality. And, you know, people know that these, you know, stars like Sting or Madonna and these different people, they do these tantric sex practices and and so that's oftentimes what the word tantra is immediately associated with um that's not what i'm into (laughs) um the tantra is one of the mystical indian philosophical what's called a darshana but it's like one of the whole kind of perspectives of Indian philosophy uh, that came relatively later compared to the other old philosophies. And what it is, is it's the, it's the view that, uh, that everything is sacred and that uh, it's, it's a considered a non-dualistic 
philosophy, meaning that um, things like good and bad and all of the different pairs of opposites are only relative, but that everything is made of the same stuff and that that stuff is inherently sacred and good. Mm. That like the, the whole material universe, even though it has so many different flavors and colors and shades, the whole material universe is, is of the same creator and made of the same stuff, which is not different from that creator. And, and practically how that comes out in, in the way that I teach or that tantric people will teach is, you know, what I've talked about a little bit already, but it's, it's like, how do we find the sacred in the ordinary? And, and how do we take, you know, our material existence and, and not shun it as a distraction, you know, like that's the ascetic point of view is, you know, let me not have sense pleasures. Let me not, you know, have wealth. Let me not have the distractions of the world so that I can focus on the divine. And all traditions have that ascetic tradition. And the tantric view is more like, well, no, you know, have money, but just have it in a very excellent way. Mm. And and have it in a way that doesn't distract you. And in fact, you know, use that pursuit of abundance and wealth as a pursuit of excellence within yourself. And have relationships, but just have them in an excellent way where, you know, your relationships with your kids or your partners or your lovers or your friends have that same uh, sacredness to them. Same thing with your body, you know, same thing with our relationship to the earth that, you know, the earth isn't just this, this stepping stone to, to heaven, but actually this earth is a manifestation of that heavenly energy. And how do we relate to it with a sense of deep reverence? Um, you know, that's, that's the view of Tantra. And then also, like, let our sexuality be magnificent. You know, if we're going to have a sexuality, let it be something that we that is really, really good. And, you know, let us train ourselves, you know, with that. But to me, you know, and there are practices that come from that, that part of uh, tantric, tantric tradition, um, where you can have sexual training for sure. But to me, it's not different than food, you know, and if you're going to cook food, you know, be a good chef. You know, if you're, if you're going to go for a walk, go for a magnificent walk in, in the most beautiful place you can and, and enjoy it as deeply as, as, as available to you. And if it's not available to you, then do the practices to, to make yourself more open. Mm. Does that make sense? It's kind of a long answer, but like, I, I just, I always like to really advocate for the traditional understanding of Tantra instead of, you know, the image that people have of like, 
wild sex positions or, you know, <laughs> you know, like candles and chakra posters and, you know, the, the Kama Sutra or what. Kama yeah. Sutra doesn't have anything to do with, with, uh, Tantra. At yeah. All. <laughs> I think there's definitely a lot of confusion, um, around the word Tantra. So I really appreciate that you described that for us because I think there's, there's something really beautiful about the, this definition to me that, is this interconnected relationship and also giving it your all, like really just being in yeah. whatever you're doing, um, yeah. which is, which like if, if I could live my life and I think if all of us could live our life that way to just be totally in, into whatever, whatever we're doing and wherever we are, I think we could literally have such a blissful life. It would be heaven on earth. So I love that. And David, can you tell us, about your journey? How did you learn your philosophy? Maybe you could just walk us through how you yeah. learned about all these different uh, concepts and how you brought them to your work. Sure. Um, you know, I kind of went to the spiritual school of hard knocks, you could say, <laughs> uh, in some ways. Um, I, I was raised in a family where um, my parents were uh, alcoholic. And, you know, not necessarily what you think of, you know, like yelling and breaking things and, and like that, they were, you know, middle-class, you know, people that were kind of civilized in a certain way, but were also, uh, you know, addicted to alcohol and, and as such were checked out from, from their inner life and their emotional life. And, um, I, and all of my brother's we all came into adolescence and young adulthood, you know, as addicts ourselves. And, uh, you know, when I was a kid, I got into a lot of trouble, um, with the police and was, you know, a very wild, uh, kid. I was into a lot of drugs and alcohol at, at a very young age. And, um, for me, it wasn't just a big party, but, it was, I was a very unhappy kid. Mm. And just through the stroke of grace, um, I got turned on to the idea of conscious sobriety. Um, when I was in high school, I was 16 going on 17. And at that time is when 12-step groups were becoming more known. Um, and kids were being sent to rehab. It was like that, that it was, this was the eighties. And, um, my girlfriend at the time got sent to rehab. She got busted and put in rehab and I would go visit her by sneaking into 12 step meetings mm. that they would take the kids to. There were public meetings and I would like sneak her packs of cigarettes and, you know, just go in there. And, and I think I, sometimes I would go high. And, but when I was there, as I encountered the people that had been consciously sober and, and, you know, that's really a spiritual path. It's not just about getting free from the, from the disease of addiction, but, you know, that's just the first step. And then the rest of it is this really deep spiritual path. And when I met those adults, it was the first time that I saw adults that I really admired and that had something that I wanted. Mm. And, you know, like you know, a lot of kids kind of discover what their passion is when they're young. And, you know, the 
the athlete will like see the professional athlete and, and get, you know, inspired to, to go deeper into their, into their game or the, you know, the artist will like see an artist and be inspired. And for me, as a young person, it was seeing spiritual people and, and people that weren't, they weren't religious, they were spiritual. And, and I could talk about that difference, but, um, and as I got into that, that then eventually led me to the Eastern spirituality, to yoga and meditation, and eventually to going really deep into that and, you know, like working with spiritual masters and, you know, living in ashrams and going to India and, um, and then just living my life, you know, so completely sober, completely just facing life on life's terms and really having to use my spiritual tools to help me. Um, because, you know, and, and some of your listeners might relate to this, but, you know, when you're raised in the kind of family that I'm raised in, you don't get taught tools for living. And, you know, my parents both passed away, you know, relatively young, you know, when I was relatively young. And so I didn't really have family to lean on. I didn't have those tools that were embedded in me by my family before they went. And so I just really, you know, it, it's never been a theoretical path for me. It's always been deeply practical. And then being a teacher, you know, being a healer, being a, you know, doing, you know, working with other people and having the privilege of people really inviting me into their process and just seeing you know, countless now, I don't know, thousands and thousands of people over the years move through, you know, sometimes move through difficulties, sometimes, you know, make their dreams come true. Sometimes, you know, really get to know, get to know God, but not in a theoretical or a religious way, but, you know, in, in a really like, in a relational way that is free from the dogma you know, mm. beyond all that stuff. Yeah. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing your journey, David. That was really uh, powerful. And I think it also gives a lot of people inspiration that uh, no matter where you are, I think there's always yeah. a way to move up, right? And and yeah. find the resources and find the tools. I think that what I've noticed this year is that so many people have given up. There's a sense of loss yes. in terms of there's yes. nothing out there for me. No one can fix me. No one can help me. You know, nothing works. And so I'm, yeah. I really want to encourage people to, you know, look at your story, look at other stories and see that there's absolutely always, there's infinite possibilities and uh, how your life yeah. can turn out. So thank you for that. Wow. Yeah. David, what has changed with your work or your perspective since we started quarantine? And how do you envision a post-quarantine world? Mm, I love that. Um, I, I think that we're facing the end of the world in a certain way. I, I think that we're facing, um, you know, the the English word apocalypse comes from a Greek word that means the the the, the truth is revealed, that the that the um, the veil is lifted. You can imagine, 
And I, I think that having the whole world kind of ground to a halt in a certain way, it could, I mean, it could be way worse. I mean, it could be a much, a much, I feel like this has been a very compassionate apocalypse <laughs> so far. Mm. <laughs> um, we're, we're like, you know, but, but enough of one that we do get really pulled back and we're like, oh yeah, well, what if none of our assumptions of how our life was going to go are going to come true? You know, what if, you know, the things that have made life relatively easy are suddenly just not available anymore. Um, you know, it's, it's, you know, put people into that thought experiment. And so my work has changed. I mean, on a practical level, I'm not traveling, you know, before COVID, I would go on a trip at least once a month, most of which were overseas you know, to, to work with people and do workshops and retreats and things like that. Um, ordinarily this time of year, I, I would be, you know, I'd be on the road somewhere and I'm not, I'm just here and I'm working with people virtually. Um, but I'm, I'm actually working with more people, uh, in a certain way because I'm having people, especially with the, with the consulting work, that, you know, either for some practical reason need to recreate themselves or recreate their career or recreate things. But, but also, you know, like the distractions are gone. And so people are facing, you know, they're facing relationships that maybe they don't want to be in anymore. You know, they're facing, they're facing stuff that before they were able to be distracted from. And, and so, um, I'm working with a lot of people beautiful, you know, beautifully and helping them to answer your second question, which is like to envision a post apocalyptic world where I think that we're going to be called on to be architects of that world. Mm, yeah. And, and I don't know, it's like, this is such a crazy thing. I don't even know. I can't even imagine three weeks from now what we're going to be facing. And let alone three months or six months. And, but I, I think that what, what my work is, I, I would like to think that this is what it's always been about. But right now, it's like for real, for real, for real. What it's about is helping people to focus on what's truly important. Right. And, and to make that which is truly important to them the center of their life. Right. Instead of on the periphery. And, you know, just giving, you know, like helping people because it, it's, you know, it doesn't mean just because it's really important that we know how to do it. Right. right. You know, like it, it can be, can be very disconcerting when we realize, oh, you know, like most important thing in my life is to be a good dad. I have no idea how to be a good dad. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like I've gone to the office every day, five days a week, all day long and played with my kid for an hour before they went to bed. And now my office is closed and now here we are. And I have no idea how to relate to this person. <laughs> um, you know, just as a, for instance, uh, but yeah, I'm, it, it's, it's really deep, but it just feels, it feels more important than ever. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I love that, that, you know, there's a, a new kind of, um, 
front runner, front, you know, runner in your life. And I think that we can't hide anymore. There's no hiding. So I love, yeah. I love that that's the, the main takeaway. And what are some books or resources other than Backbone <laughs> that you recommend <laughs> our audience reader check out? Oh boy, that's a huge question. Um, let me think of a, let me think of like a, a, a range here. Um, Esther Perel's work about intimacy is beautiful. Anything by her. Uh, the book, the, the war of art by Stephen Pressfield is a, an amazing book for anyone who's a creative. Love that book. Um, yeah, you know that one. You know, because, because there's so many different areas to to sort of like take a stab at. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I think people should I think people should enjoy art. I've I've been um I've been getting really into Walt Whitman's Song of Myself and and Leaves of Grass, you know, that the, his poetry. Ooh. Um, you know, you know, looking at stuff like that. I don't know why this is coming up, but somebody, some one of your listeners needs to read this book called Shameless, <laughs> which is um, by, and uh, her, her name is escaping me at the moment, but she's a Lutheran minister based in Denver. Um, amazing woman who, who went through the whole Bible and is just debunking all of the uh, anti-woman and anti-sex ideas that have come into modern Christianity and debunking them based on, on theology and based on scripture. That's a brilliant book. Uh, her name is Nadia Bowles Weber. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, her, her work is incredible. Yeah. I mean, that will keep you busy. Oh, it's another one. I don't know why I'm thinking of all these Christian uh, things, but there, there's a book called The Universal Christ uh, by my, uh, I like to think of him as like one of my spiritual uncles, Father Richard Rohr, um, who's a Franciscan monk, uh, but just super progressive, beautiful. And again, just sort of like taking something that is quite religious and just taking all of the BS out of it and just getting into the essence of, you know, what the, what the message in his case, he's talking about Christ, but you know, it could just be any expression of divine love. Um, I've been reading a lot of Coleman Barks renderings of Jalaluddin Rumi um, and, and his, his Sufi messages. Um, there's a book called the essential Rumi which is just a big collection of Coleman Barks renderings of, of that work. Um, I'm, I'm just thinking of like the books that are on this, you know, like yeah. next to my bed right now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. These are all great. <laughs> I, I've read actually a lot of them. So definitely also recommend. Yeah. Um, David, what do you want to tell our listeners about their health and wellness? What's the main takeaway? Yeah. If we, Look at our bodies, not like a consumer, and not from the point of view of a consumer. In other words, how do we look, you know, like how well am I able to perform in my job? 
you know, how's my cholesterol levels, you know, like in terms of my lifespan and my ability to earn, <laughs> you know, I <laughs> yeah. don't know. Um, but, but we look at our bodies more like a conservationist and we look at our bodies like a wild animal mm. that, that is, that is living in a habitat that is probably not optimal. You know, if we look at our, our body like a wild animal that, you know, what, what kind of water is it drinking? Is it drinking enough water? What kind of food is available to it in, in what kind of toxins can we protect this animal from? Um, what is its natural movement like? And does it have enough space to have that natural movement? You know, what is its, you know, how does it like to be pet? And, you know, does it, you know, <laughs> what kind of, what kind of pleasure does it enjoy? And is it getting pet enough? Hmm. You know, all of these things. I love that. Um, but mm -hmm. yeah, but because our body is that our body is just this innocent animal that has, you know, has this owner, which is you. And, you know, the, the owner may or may not have its best interests in mind. It might be, you know, treating it like a, like a, a donkey or a camel or something that is just like a work animal. <laughs> and it forgot that, well, this, you know, along with carrying my, my pack all day, this donkey also likes to get brushed and, you know, <laughs> run around and, you know, like <laughs> be with other donkeys. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that. I love that. That's beautiful. That's uh, a really good reminder, I think, for everyone who kind of is, det it's almost as if a lot of us are treating our bodies like it's a separate entity uh, than, yeah. than us. You know, we're like, we're, yeah. yeah, so it's, that's a great reminder. <laughs> and David, yeah. are there any uh, links that you can point folks to in order to learn more about your work? How can they get in touch with you? Uh, since everything is on yes. Zoom, yeah, I'm sure that they can make an appointment yes. online. So sure, yeah. I mean, uh, on my social media, I'm very active. So uh, whether it's Facebook or Instagram or Twitter, um, it's at David H Wagner H for Harsha. The make sure you put the H because David Wagner is just some nice like computer engineer in Santa Barbara <laughs> that gets way too many emails from people about their child sexual trauma and, you know, their crisis where they don't believe in God anymore. And <laughs> all these things. Um, so H, so David H Wagner is my handle on social media. Um, and then I have also been um, making visual art again, uh, making oh. paintings and, um, people have been, it's been a really cool response from people around the world and people are buying my paintings and putting them in their homes. And, um, it, not everyone is into abstract art. They're these sort of abstract expressionist paintings, but that is, um, Wagner underscore paintings on Instagram. And, um, that's, sort of a fun a fun thing to look at even just to just for fun 
<laughs> Amazing. I will go check that out. Uh, I think I've been yeah. picking up the habit of, of painting this year as well. This is a good year to do it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I didn't realize how much of my time was taken with traveling and it wasn't just the time when I was actually traveling, but then it's, you know, packing and unpacking and planning and, you know, only getting so rooted and so any home that I've had for the past 20 years has been more like a base and less like a home. Mm. And, you know, during COVID, you know, I just realized that I could turn my backyard into a, a painting studio and, um, and it doesn't really rain here during the summer months. And yeah, I have a whole body of work that I've done just this summer. Wow. That's so cool. And I love, I love that, that home has always been a base, not a a home. I think that's yeah. true for a lot of people. Yeah. Uh, David, thank you so much for your time. This was such a powerful conversation. I think it's going to really help a lot of people and I'm just really grateful for your time. So thank you so much. Well, I hope so. And I, you know, I thank everyone who took the time to, to get to this point in the interview and, you know, your time is precious and I don't take it for granted. And, you know, Yasmin, keep up the good work. This is such a amazing service that you're offering to your, to your audience. And, um, yeah, just bless your work and may it prosper in every way. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> I so appreciate that. Oh, thank you for our audience. Thanks for joining and for listening. In this episode, we learn about soulful parenting, the importance of the sacred in one's life, and a new vision for men's spirituality. You can tune in to Gateways to Awakening, where we host one-on-one -on -one conversations with leading experts in wellness and spirituality. Thanks again. <laughs>